All right, if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. And let's pray together. God, we ask that as we open up your word, that you'd open up our hearts and minds, that you'd give us ears to hear those things that you would say to us and make us attentive, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So if you're joining with us for the first time, we've been in a series over the last couple weeks in the book of Jonah. And of course, Jonah is a very familiar book. It's a very famous book. And we all almost always associate the character of Jonah with another character in the story. And that character is who? It's the whale. It's the fish, right? But what's interesting is that Jewish commentaries and the Jewish people oftentimes are not so much associating Jonah with the figure of the whale. They associate rather Jonah with the idea of repentance. In fact, one Jewish commentator put it like this. He said that Jonah is the classic statement on the Israelite idea of repentance. And we had a couple weeks ago, actually, Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur, for those of you who may know, is the highest holy day on the Jewish calendar. And Yom Kippur is a day of national repentance and national fasting. And so it is the day when the Jewish community focuses on kind of their own inner life and they confess and they repent of their sins. In synagogue service on Yom Kippur, my sister has shared with me kind of about a practice they did. And they will stand up in the service and you'll have uh, groups in the service facing each other. And they will go through a litany of confession that goes from A to Z, or in Hebrew, from the Aleph to the Tov. And each letter represents another aspect of our lives that we need to name and confess as sin before God. And so they confess this sin to each other as they beat their breast with each confession, which has a powerful, powerful experience, wouldn't you think? But Yom Kippur is the day where they focus on repentance. And do you know in the Jewish service on Yom Kippur, for hundreds of years, what texts they have studied and spent time in? It is the book of Jonah. And the reason, of course, is because in Jonah chapter 3, the very chapter that we're looking at, the main focus, the main kind of thing that's happening in this chapter is repentance. In fact, you could say that this chapter provides for us what is arguably the largest the most comprehensive, it is certainly the most dramatic show of repentance that we have in the entire Bible. And so every year, for hundreds of years, the Jewish people go back and they learn about repentance from this chapter. And what is so ironic, what is so interesting to me about that is that who is the model for, the rep for repentance in this chapter? It is not King David, it is not Father Abraham, it is not Moses the lawgiver. The primary model that they utilize to draw upon a kind of like relearn about repentance are the inhabitants of the capital cities of one of the greatest, most violent threats Israel has ever known. And it is from this group that they go back year after year and they learn about repentance. And so this morning, what I want to invite you to do is to join with me as we join what the Jews have done for generation after generation, and we're going to sit kind of in the school of repentance with the Ninevites and learn something about what it means to repent. Now, before we jump in, though, to what 
Jonah 3 is teaching us, we need to talk for a minute about this word repentance because I think in our own culture, in our own day, this word has kind of fallen on hard times. And I think when we hear the word repentance, oftentimes what it conjures up in our minds are images of of mean-looking people standing on the street with a big sign that says, repent. I can remember back when I was in high school, there was a a group of Christian bikers. It was like a Christian biker gang that used to go down to Huntington Beach in the middle of summer. And they had this big black van with these flames on the side and painted on the side was the phrase, you're going to hell. And then there was a guy uh, on a Harley that would ride behind, you know, this big black van and he would just call out, repent, repent. But what conjures up my mind when I think about this word repentance are kind of self-righteous, critical, judgmental, religious people who want to try to coerce and control other people's behavior and make them feel bad because they're not as good as they are. But that's a shame because the biblical notion of repentance has little to do with all of that. In fact, uh, the, 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 the biblical idea of repentance is actually much more basic, it is much more human, and it is much more important than all of that. The Hebrew word for repentance is the word shuva. Can we all say that together? That's good. You guys are doing good. But this is a fascinating word because in the Jewish mindset, to follow God would be to walk down a path. It would be to walk down a path with God of righteousness and love and trust and obedience. And to sin in the Old Testament, oftentimes the word they would use would be chet, yeah? I'm looking at my sister, she's up here, she's the Hebrew scholar. But the word chet actually means to stray from a path. And so the idea of shuva is actually to return. It means to come back on the path. The word shuva means to return to the the path of justice and love and obedience and trust with God. Now, who among us in this room doesn't find ourselves often straying, not only from the people God wants you to be, but the people you want to be, right? And you oftentimes want to be and need to be called back to the path. Last week, I, uh, I found myself, you know, after a long season of really just eating unhealthy, I'm chalking it up to you people, you're making me anxious and stressed, and so I'm eating more sugar and ice cream and so on and so forth. And so uh, this last week, I, did, I committed to doing the Whole30 diet. And so the Whole30 diet, the, the whole thing about it is um, there's no dairy, uh, there's no sugar, uh, you, there's no alcohol, there's no uh, pizza, there's no uh, hamburgers, there's nothing that makes life happy. <laughs> so you have to give it up all, you have to give it all away. And um, so I, I found myself that I needed to turn from the path of unhealth and get on the path of health, but then... After embracing this diet, I found myself getting really cranky this last week because I wasn't eating any of the things that make me happy. There was no ice cream, and so I was shorter with my children, I was impatient with them, so again, I found myself wandering from the path, and I needed to be put back on the path of kindness and love with my children. Now, do you find yourself ever wandering from the path and needing to be put back on the path? Now, of course, those are trite, kind of simplistic examples. I think a lot of us could probably tell stories We've taken journeys that have really taken us far from God, taken us far from the life that we want to live, the life that honors God, the life that God wants us to live. 
And so tshuva is all about getting back on the path. And so don't you see, this is not just some churchy, religious word that guys put on a sign when they hold on the side of the street. Rather, your maturity, your growth, your very humanity depends on shuva. It depends on you being called back to the right path. It depends on repentance. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to be learning from the Ninevites. And we're going to learn three things about repentance from the Ninevites. Number one, we're going to see where repentance begins. Second, we'll see what it involves. And then thirdly, we're going to see how God responds. Notice first in our text, we, we learn where repentance begins. Look at what it says in verse 1 of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. He says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And I love that. And the, the call is almost an exact verbatim of the original call. It's almost as if God forgets all that incident about running in the opposite direction and, and the storm and the fish and the failure to pray and all of Jonah's failures, and he reasserts the call to Jonah a second time as if nothing has happened. Because this God who we meet in this story is the God of the second chance. And so he comes to Jonah a second time. He says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And so Jonah began to go into the city, a day's journey, and this is what he called out. He brought to the city a wake-up call, and he said, Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So where does repentance begin? Well, for the Ninevites, it began with a wake-up call. And the wake-up call came for this people in the form of a threat of oncoming judgment. Doesn't it sound like a threat of oncoming judgment? He says, 40 days and this whole place is going to be overthrown. And do you know why that sounds like a threat of judgment? because it's a threat of judgment. Now, I know in our modern kind of secular age, we oftentimes we get down on these ideas of judgment. But I want you to stop and think for a moment about Jonah and really have sympathy for what he's doing right now. This is a man from a province that is weaker, that is marginalized, that is threatened. And this man goes to this violent, unjust, one of the most violent and unjust empires in the history of the world. And he walks into the heart of their capital city and he speaks truth to power. And he threatens them. He says, look, you're unjust, you're inhumane, you're toxic, your violent behavior will not go unnoticed by God. God has called you up short. Judgment's coming. And this is where their repentance began. It began with a wake-up call. Now, the Ninevites hear the call. Look at what it says. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they call for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So it begins not only with a wake-up call. It begins with a ready response to this wake-up call. And this is where repentance begins. 
You know, repentance began for Jonah with a storm and with a fish. And the wake-up call for the Ninevites is this cranky prophet who's now been spit out by this fish and is now coming to them declaring about judgments. But whether through a storm or a fish or a cranky prophet, repentance often begins when God enters into your life from the outside and something shakes you up and gets your attention and says, look, the road you're going down is going to destroy you. I wonder if there's anyone in this room who's ever experienced a wake-up call. It's ever found yourself, you were wandering from the path, you were doing kind of the wrong kinds of things, and then there was this invasion from outside, like a prophet from a long away country enters into your life with this word from God. You see, oftentimes the only voice, the only word that we're listening to when we're on our path that's taken us far away from the way of love and justice and peace and truth and worship and and God, the only voices that we're oftentimes listening to are our own voices of self-justification, defensiveness. Oh, I deserve to be doing this. Oh, they shouldn't be. This is me. That's them. And it's their problem. It's their fault. And we're justifying ourselves. And we're justifying ourselves. And what we need is a voice from outside of the voices in our own head that is stronger, that is truer, that is more powerful and honest than those voices. And this is the voice of God that breaks in to wake us up. And it comes to the Ninevites through this prophet, Jonah. Now, their response is dramatic. It is crazy. It says in verse 5, so so Jonah, it says that the city is three days' breath, and he barely just starts to walk into the city, and he starts to call this thing out, and it's like this message starts to travel like wildfire through this community. And it says, and the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he removed his robe, and he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in ashes, and he issues this publication throughout the city, and he calls for national repentance for this entire city to turn to God. Now, this is shocked, surprised, it's confused commentators, and they've wondered why is it that the Ninevites gave Jonah such a ready response? And as a preacher, I must say that Jonah kind of frustrates me here because I spend hours and hours every week, you know, pouring over sermons, you know, agonizing over language, trying to come up with the right phrases and stories and illustrations and explanations and slides and all this stuff to bring you a word from God in hopes that you will respond. And week after week, I just look at you people and you're not even listening hardly. But here's Jonah. Jonah preaches the worst sermon I've ever seen. It's one line. In Hebrew, it is five words. 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. Nothing about God, nothing about the possibility of forgiveness or repentance, nothing that kind of lists out their sins. There's no poetry. There's no metaphor. There's no stories. It's just a one-liner. And the entire city repents. And commentators have asked, and pastors have asked, and Bible readers have asked, what gives? Why is it that the Ninevites gave Jonah such a ready and an immediate response? 
And some of the answers that have been proposed were, you know, in the medieval times, commentators said, well, perhaps, you know, Jonah's body was so bleached by the gastric juices of the fish that when he gets there, he looks like some zombie night of the living dead. You know, people are like, ah, you know, and, and then they repent. And others have said, you know, in the modern era, no, you know, there's a scientific explanation. There was astrological signs, and there was an eclipse at this time, and they saw the signs in heaven, and they connected it with Jonah's message of repentance or of judgment, and they responded. Martin Luther just threw his hands in the air and said, it was a city of saints. What can we say? But, you know, the text doesn't tell us any of those things. What the text tells us is that The repentance was evoked not by an astrological sign, not by a zombie-like prophet, but by a word from the sovereign and the living God, a word of judgment. And this word, this voice from outside broke into the city and people responded. But I think what, what, what the author of this text is doing is he's wanting us to see a crazy irony at the very heart of the story. And the irony is that the prophet of God, the one who knows the truth about Yahweh, the God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth, the man who knows the Bible and all of the right answers, the moral man, the upright man, is slow to repent. While the city of Nineveh that is full of all of their unrighteousness and godlessness and violence is incredibly, at the drop of a dime, quick to repent. As if to say to us this, sometimes it's the very people who we think are out that are actually more sensitive to God and are eventually brought in. And the very people who think that they're in, they're the Bible-believing people, the, the upright people, these are the people who are out because their hearts are hardened and they're unrepentant and they're callous and they're good, they're moral people, and yet they're unresponsive to the voice of God in their life. Now this should be sobering to us because I gather that there's probably more people in this room that in your way of life and how you live and the kind of people you are, you are probably more like the prophet Jonah than you were the people of Nineveh. And the author wants us to see something of ourselves in Jonah. And he wants us to ask questions about our own readiness to repent, our own readiness to respond to God. You know, Jonah, it took him three days, and even at the end of three long days, he finally prays. But even it's a half-hearted prayer of repentance. I mean, you get to chapter four, and you kind of think, like, Jonah really all along is kind of like uh, that one Calvin and Hobbes comic where Calvin, uh, he's told to sit down by his mom and he sits down and the little bubble above his head, it says, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. (laughs) And this is Jonah, you get to chapter four, I'm obeying on the outside, but I am disobeying on the inside. He is calloused and hardened to God. What about you? What about me? Well, the voice of God breaks in, it calls this community to account. It reveals to them from the outside that God is there. He is not silent. He has not been unaware of the unjust, violent behavior of this imperial power. And he will call them short and they will be held to account. They receive this message and they immediately repent. 
And notice as we move on from where their repentance began with this great word from outside of them, this wake-up call, and I want you to notice something of the character of their repentance. I want you to see what it involved. Number one, it involved turning in, and then it involved turning away, and then finally it involves turning up. This is what their repentance involved, it was involved in their repentance, and this is what's involved in our repentance. Notice first, it involves turning in. Look at what it says. Right after this message comes, verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Notice what the people do. It says they believed God and then it says they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then the word reaches the king. And what does he do? He arises from his throne, he removes his robe, and he covers himself with sackcloth. And he sits down in ashes. And then he issues this proclamation that everyone should do this massive fast. Verse 7, he says, he issued a proclamation, proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and the nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. So do you see what's happening? The people hear and they immediately put on sackcloth and they fast. The king hears, he puts on sackcloth and he calls for a a fast and he commands everybody, even the animals, to put on sackcloth and to fast. He says, let let neither animal nor uh, people eat or drink. And you kind of think like, why include the animals in this? I mean, everyone knows, I mean, everyone knows that cats probably need to repent because they're just diabolical, you know, insensitive, callous creatures. But, you know, what did the cows ever do, right? But, of course, the author is using hyperbole. He's talking about the massive, dramatic response to this word of God. It stretches to everyone. But it includes fasting and sackcloth. Now, we modern people, I mean, a lot of us in this room, we've had moments where we feel guilty, shame over sin or whatever, and we confess, we repent, we turn. But how many of you have ever engaged in fasting and sackcloth? Like, what's up with fasting and sackcloth? Well, sackcloth has incredible symbolic meaning. Uh, Dr. Robert Cavola, who's in the back, uh, who's working on a theology of fashion, working on a book, but uh, he has sent uh, our family some copies of his manuscript that he's working on. But he, he coined this, he didn't coin this phrase, he used this phrase in his book uh, called sartorial semiotics. And sartorial refers to clothing, and semiotics refers to the sign or the meaning of those clothing items. Because, you know, if you're an academic, you don't say the symbols or the signs of clothing. You talk about sartorial semiotics. And so we're reading this to my children. You know, my daughters are, are, are listening to us read them this manuscript. And so last week, they walked up to Pastor Robert and they said, Hey, Robert, um, uh, so tell us about your sartorial semiotics today. What's the sartorial semiotics of sackcloth? Sackcloth is intentionally uncomfortable. It is intended to create discomfort, to make you feel like this is almost creates pain to wear this. And what is fasting? 
Well, fasting is the opposite of feasting. Feasting is all about celebration. Fasting is all about mourning and sorrow. And so what is this saying about their, their repentance? It is saying that they looked inward, they saw their violence and their evil, and they mourned over it, and they recognized the discomfort, the pain that their actions were causing their own communities and the people around them. And this is always the first step of repentance. It is recognizing the discomfort, the pain that your actions, that your words, that the things that you are taking so trivially, that you are justifying in your mind, it is naming and owning the pain, the difficulty that's caused to your family, to your children, to your spouse, to the people around you. And so often in our fast food culture where we wanna just get past everything really quickly, we, we want to move past this whole thing of like working through the pain that our actions inflict on people. But there is no quick move through genuine forgiveness and restoration. It involves actually naming and owning and recognizing the pain and the difficulty that your own actions have caused people. And some of you are not there yet. Some of you, the way you speak to other people, your attitude that you hold to people, your contempt, your anger, your controlling tendencies have always wanted to micromanage everybody around you. Like these things are destructive. They're toxic. They're unhelpful. Do you recognize what you're doing to people around you? The first step of of genuine repentance is to look in and to recognize the junk in your own life, to name it and to be honest about it, to stop justifying, stop defending. I can remember years ago talking to a friend who experienced this dramatic turn in his life. And he said, the turn came for me, he said, "When when, when I was confronted by somebody to stop taking the voice of a victim and start taking the voice of responsibility. Listen, all of us in this room, we've all been victims in one degree or another. And there is a place of naming that, there's a place of calling that out, and there is no genuine repentance of other people unless they are called out for the ways in which they have victimized you. But if you live out of the voice of a victim, if you're always talking about them and they and the raw deal you got and what these people are doing and how they're changing your church and how, you know, what they're doing around and what these people are, it's them, it's them, it's them, and it's my wife, and I wouldn't be doing this if it wouldn't for, if she wasn't so cold and insensitive to me. Stop it. The first step is to name and to own what's in your heart and life. This is fasting, this is sackcloth, this is what we need to enter into. But it moves from simply, from turning inward and seeing their sin, but it moved to turning away from their sin and their evil. And this is the second step of repentance. Look at what it says in verse eight. He says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his or her hands. This is a call not simply to confess 
and to feel shame and to feel guilt and remorse and sorrow over your sin. It is actually a call to excise, to turn away from those sins that are in your heart and your life. And you know, throughout the New Testament, this is consistently the call on the church. When the word of repentance comes, it's a call to turn away from. You know, very often in our evangelical churches, we're very comfortable in getting in small groups and having accountability partners and kind of talking together about how we're all just broken and we're all just messed up, you know, and we kind of like wallow in our brokenness. And there's a place for that. There's a place for getting together in community and naming the junk in your life. But that is not repentance. That's only the start. Repentance is when you actually excise, you turn away from those patterns, those habitual sins, and you get them out of your life and you experience freedom from them. And that's why the great prophet of repentance, John the Baptist, when he was doing his baptism of repentance and the crowds came to him and they said, hey, what what should we do? And he says, well, whoever has two tunics, you know, you've been stingy, you've been keeping all your stuff. He says, instead, Become someone who shares. Share with him who has none. Whoever has food, do likewise. That's a great command for most of us American affluent people to hear. And he says, in tax gatherers, stop cheating people and collect no more than you're allowed. And to the soldiers, he said, hey, look, stop extorting money from anyone by threats and false accusations and be content with your wages. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians put the same idea like this. He said, hey, put off the old man. Put off lying and put on truth. Put off anger and clamor and slander and malicious speech and all of your negativity. He says, put it off, turn it away, and instead put on a different way of life. This is the call of the New Testament. It is not simply to acknowledge that we're broken, needy people. It is to turn away from our sin. Francis Chan has this great illustration of this. He says, you know, he goes, he goes, you know, there was a, he says, imagine if I go to my daughter and uh, I would say to her, honey, um, I, I want you to go and clean your room. And she goes off into her room and she comes back three hours later And she says, Daddy, 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 guess what, guess what? I memorized the command. Watch this. Honey, go and clean your room. It's like, oh, that's that's great, honey. Well, what else? She said, well, I I invited some of my friends over, and we've been sitting in the room the last couple hours, and we've just been processing together about what it might look like if we clean the room, you know, and how broken we are and what a mess our rooms are. And then we all just kind of went home. We felt all good about ourselves because, you know, and it's like, but did you clean the room? She's like, no, I didn't do that. (laughs) And this is the church in America. We memorize, we, we, we learn our Bible stuff, but we, we can fail to actually excise the sinful patterns from our life. And I think at least part of the reason why we don't turn away from evil and injustice and our patterns of addiction is very often, I know for some of you, the sinful patterns that you're falling into, your addictions, have a deep power in your life. And part of that power is shame And there is no shame, I want you to know. There's no shame in being a broken human person. We all are. 
I am. I'm a mess. You are not alone. You don't have to hide in your shame. You can come out and be honest. You can have the courage to be a sinner because that is what the church is. We are a community of the broken. But once we come out of the shadows, we actually need the courage to embrace a path that leads to freedom. I can remember being in a class with Dallas Willard actually up here in the, uh, at the Catholic Retreat Center in the hills. And, and he was talking about how, you know, in our churches, we oftentimes are exhorting people toward obedience, but we're not giving them the tools to move into it. And then he began to talk to us about Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, you know, that was started by a, a devoutly Christian guy who actually dug deep into biblical principles to help people enter into a process that would lead to freedom. And just consider some of the steps in this process. And I present this to you for you to grab a hold of and perhaps to embrace and to practice so that for you and I in those areas in your own life that the Holy Spirit may be putting his finger on right now, that you would take seriously and you would do something about. Here's step number three. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. We admitted to God and to ourselves and to one another the exact nature of our wrongs. In other words, we stopped justifying and defending and we chose the path of honesty and truth-telling. We were entirely ready to have God remove all of these defects of our character. We, we were tired of it. We were sick of it. We wanted to get it out of our life. We humbly asked God to remove our shortcomings. We made a list of all persons we harmed and became willing to make amends with them all. I can remember a dear friend of mine who years ago uh, had been struggling with a, uh, an addiction in his life. And I can remember the day he came out and walked around to every person who he had been in relationship with that he felt like had been negatively affected by his patterns, including his father-in-law, and this was a deeply shameful sin to confess, including his father-in-law, to make amends in healing. And that's a process you go through of excising those powers in your life. Sin flourishes when it's hidden, but when it's disclosed in honesty and truth before the face of God, you can find freedom. And so they turned in, and then they turned away from their sin. But finally, I want you to see, and don't miss this, they turned up. Notice the king's edict, he says, he commands everyone to cry out mightily to God. It's as if this king, who, who knows very little of the God of Israel, has come instinctively to see that the very reason why we continually pursue these paths that take us away from God and the way of life is, is that we actually have an emptiness in our life that only the fullness of God and his love and relationship with God can fill. Years ago, there was an old Puritan preacher whose name was Thomas Chalmers. And he wrote this essay entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That's a great title the expulsive power of a new affection. 
And he said, if we're only focused on those negative behaviors, those old patterns that we've been falling into, and we're trying to say, no, bad sin, kick it away, but yet we're not replacing it with the way of life and God, we will never find freedom. But when your own heart is wrapped up in the love of God, and when you are walking in the fullness of God's way of life that he offers us in relationships that is so much better than the kind of stuff we choose when we go on our paths far from God, he said, when you choose these new affections, it has an expulsive power to drive out the old. And so they turn up towards God. And notice God's response. Verse 10, and when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them and he did not do it. And all of a sudden it occurs to us, especially as we read on, that the original wake-up call that came through the mouth of this prophet, this word of judgment, although honest and though real, God will hold the world and to account for its injustice and its violence. That word of judgment, that wake-up call, always had its ultimate end. God desired that the end would ultimately be that these people would turn and experience his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. And this is how God responds to us when we turn away from our sin, when we leave those paths, when we leave the pigsty and we take the long road back home to the Father's house. We meet a Father who meets us before we even get home with arms wide open, with grace and with mercy and with forgiveness. After the king of Nineveh, issues his edict to the entire city. Everyone needs to repent, he says. He calls for a fast. He calls for sackcloth. He calls for everyone to turn away and to cry out mightily to God. And then he says this. He holds out this possibility. He says, who knows? Maybe God will hear and relent. It's a profound statement from a pagan king. Because he just says, who knows? He recognizes that at the end of the day, forgiveness and mercy and justice and judgment all lie in the prerogative of the God who is free and sovereign over all. The God who sends cranky prophets into cities to evoke repentance holds within his own free self the prerogative to forgive or to bring judgment. And the king picks up on this and he, he just says, who, who knows that perhaps, friends, you want to know the incredible great news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, there is no who knows. There is no perhaps. But in Jesus Christ, all of the promises of God of mercy and grace and forgiveness and healing and new life and hope are yes and amen. Your forgiveness, your healing is guaranteed in the wounds of Jesus on the cross. There is no more perhaps. There is no more who knows. There is only a yes and amen in Jesus Christ. 
You know, as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, I want to invite you to do something in this moment. And before the face of the God who knows you all the way down and who loves you still, I want to just invite you to, you know, close your eyes, bow your heads, and just in this space, I want you to name before his face those areas in your life where you have wandered from the path of love. At the end of the day, that is what all sin is. It is wandering from God's path of love and life. What are those ways this week that you have wandered from the path to love spouse and to love children, to love parents and neighbors, siblings and friends and your enemies? Where are those places where you have turned from God who is the center of reality, who ought to be the center of your loves and affections, and you've instead turned to idols? Where are those places where you have done that which you have ought not to have done, and you have left undone those things which you ought to have done? Just in a moment of honest confession before God, name that in your life.